So hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Living the Dream podcast, a podcast for real estate agents that discusses strategies to grow your business to its maximum potential, while at the same time making sure that you're in control of your career and have the time to live a balanced life. So I'm Linus Kilius, Head of Business Development at Homania. And with me as always is the co-host of the podcast and broker and general manager of Century 20, Century 21 Heritage Group, Aaron Richardson. Aaron, how's it going? Great, Linus. I uh, I get to stay in my house for Christmas. Oh. I uh, unfortunately had a flood a few weeks back. Actually, it was more than a few weeks. It's been a while now, a couple months back in our basement and it got some of the main floor and everything. And then now we just found out uh, we were going to have to, as of this Monday, move out into an Airbnb for a month to get the the work done. And, uh, you know, it was, it was nice. They were able to push that back till after, after the holidays actually. So it's been, it's, it was, it was good news today. Yeah. Way to make the holidays more complicated, eh? Having a flooded basement. <laughs> I hope that goes oh, well for you. God, yeah. So we actually went out and got a tree last night, set it up and did all the, all the good stuff and the kids got to participate. So we're, we're not going to be uh, homeless for Christmas. That's, that's always a good thing. Well, I'm glad you got a place to stay for Christmas. <laughs> and yes. with, but with Christmas around the corner, speaking of which, the last place that anyone wants to find themselves is on Rico's naughty list. Many agents bend the rules, cut corners and avoid attention to detail or make lazy decisions that lead to sanctions or litigation. The risk is there. And it's an agent's job to make sure all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed to properly avoid the headaches of potential lawsuits. While the risk may be low on a single transaction, the more transactions you're involved in, the greater the chance becomes that you're finding your name on the wrong end of legal action. So it turns out a little due diligence and effort can keep you on Rico's nice list. And on today's show, we're going to go over Aaron's list of the top 10 ways you can make sure your stocking remains free of coal. So Aaron, what's this list about? Like, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Why you guys came up with it in the first place? Who maybe he was a brainchild behind this? I know it wasn't just you that put this together. No, yeah, uh, we were in one of our management meetings on a on a Monday, and uh, so we we have them every Monday. And one of the things that our broker of record wanted to implement was some really detailed um, real life examples of some of the top issues that Rico sees on and we see as a brokerage, um, so that we can really specifically target those those things that are most done in our industry incorrectly um, and to make sure that all of our agents are doing it the right way. Well, I remember when I was a teenager, first got my driver's license, I sped all the time. I got a few tickets here and there, but you know, as I've progressed in age and knowledge and you know, hopefully I'm a little bit smarter than I used to be, I've decided to stop taking as many risks. I don't speed at all anymore. I haven't got a ticket in probably well over a decade. Um, why I bring this up is because a lot of like, especially newer agents might say, well, like that's never going to happen to me. It, it's just like, you know, small cutting corners. Like it's really easy to be lazy on certain things, not bother your client with the details, but as things progress, like these do become real issues, right? And I'm sure that especially agents that have been in the game for a long time have been named on maybe a lawsuit or two. Like, is this something that people like, are, are we being too fastidious here? Or is this something that people should be like being paying a lot more close attention to? 
Yeah, and I, mean, I think it, our industry is uh, indicative of uh, situations where, you know, we as agents or, or there's agents that are part-time, some are full-time, some do a ton of deals, some do no deals. So we can imagine if somebody, you know, gets behind the wheel and they haven't driven in two years, that they might be, you know, maybe not as sharp as they used to be. And then you have agents that do so many deals, they've got 100 deals a year, let's say, and uh, and they deal with so many situations that it's just a numbers game. And at, at some point in time, um, you know, some things going to come up that maybe they should have handled a little better and they, l- they learn on every deal. So, I mean, it can happen in both situations that you just do so many deals, something's bound to come up or just, you know, you haven't, uh, you're a little rusty and you get out there and you make a mistake. So we really want to look at the things that are done uh, maybe uh, more often than not or more often uh, in the industry and really target those things and make sure that uh, the agents are, are, are up to speed and, uh, and are still, you know, learning as they go, but uh, really focusing on the things that are most common. All right, well, let's kick her off the top 10 list of ways to stay out of hot water with Rico. And we're gonna start the first item on the list with deposits. Okay. Deposits, uh, there's a misconception a, uh, a little bit in our industry and that uh, if you don't have a deposit, you don't have a deal. You know, a lot of people think from contract law that the deposit is consideration in the contract and that without a deposit, yeah, no, we don't have a deal. I didn't bring the deposit. So all the agents need to know, regardless of whether or not a deposit was dropped off, there is still a deal in place. So please make sure that if you are firming up a deal or you're, or you've sort of, you just written a deal and it's conditional, even on uh, home inspection, it could be, um, it could be on financing, or if you're in a multiple offer scenario and um, your people get excited and purchase the house tonight firm with no conditions, regardless of the fact that you put in a deposit the next day, um, there is still a deal in place. So a full mutual release would need to be signed if they wanted out of the deal. And of course, if the deposit's not there, uh, they are in breach of contract, which means there's some real legal liability involved uh, and they'll need to contact their lawyer. And how about timing of getting that deposit into can this be a cause? I'm sure it can be a cause for concern, either being late or not being handed in at all. Yeah, in the contract, in the pre-printed, uh, you know, uh, details, we, we put in there that is 24 hours upon uh, upon acceptance. And that's 24 hours. That's not 24, you know, business uh, hours or anything like that. So you'd have to actually add a clause in there if it's any different from that, from what's in the pre-printed clauses. So yeah, time is of the essence. It has to be within that time period. Um, and just because it's a Saturday or Sunday, it does not negate the fact that deposits do. So if you're late on the deposit, you're in breach of contract uh, and that could be a legal liability. All right. So next on the list, we've got read and understand the offer and all documents. Sounds important. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, obviously, we're there's so many documents involved in the sale, and especially even now with agents doing things with AuthentiSign and the ease of technology and, and use, and um, we're on the go. We're reading documents mobile. You know, you bring it up on your phone, and yep, it's got the financing, it's got the home inspection. We're all good to go and send it off for you know to your clients. And it's important that we read through everything. Make sure we understand everything that's in the uh, in the document. We see in a lot of cases, agents uh, reading through doc or sending or, ha- or, you know, coming up with an agreement um, that didn't read the details, you know, who is paying for what, um, you know, if you've got a, a clause uh, with regards to a condo and who's paying for the status certificate, you know, read it, see how, 
really that is meant to be paid? If it's the seller paying for it or is it the buyer paying for it? Or, you know, is it being requested within the next two days and given 10 days for the condition? I mean, there's a lot of um, even one word and an or, you know, changed in a, in a clause can change the clause completely. So read it through and understand it. Uh, and don't just assume that it's the standard finance clause or the standard uh, home inspection clause. Uh, that has definitely gotten a lot of agents into some hot water and uh, to make sure that you are reading everything that uh, you're having your, or you're giving the information to your, your client. And if there is a section of the offer, say that, that you are unclear about what are the best steps to take? Do you, who do you look to for advice? What should you do? What kind of procedures should you take? I'll call your office manager. They're, that's why they're there, the support and uh, everything that's in your office. If you have a, a lawyer that you use and you ask a lot of questions, if it's a legal uh, issue, then ask them. But the support's there for you. I know that uh, some people team up um, and call, you know, veteran veteran office, uh, agents in the office for help. If, uh, let's say, you are in a brokerage that uh, doesn't have the support that some do, you know, you can act, ask others for, for some support and, and guidance. Um, but I would definitely ask the question to make sure you feel comfortable explaining it to your clients that they have the best um, advice as well. And in the end, if you're just stuck in that situation, it doesn't hurt to put a lawyer review clause into the agreement to have their lawyer uh, explain something that might be a difficult situation. Number three on the list. I mean, it's good. Everyone knows their own marketplace, but what happens about marketplaces you don't know about? Know your marketplace. Tell us that about that, Aaron. I just had a question this morning about this. New agent actually hasn't joined us yet. Hopefully she will. It was a, it was a great meeting we had and went over all the different things our brokerage does for our agents. But this agent specifically asked if I was selling outside of uh, my marketplace, if I was selling a, um, a a house up in cottage country, because I do have somebody who's looking up in cottage country. Um, a lot of people are telling me I should refer that. And, uh, and what do you, what do you guys, will you help me through that? So I can make, I mean, it's in a lot of cases, 20, 30, $40,000 in commissions and they're starting out. It's the only client they have. So for agents that are not working in their marketplace, how do they handle that situation? We have a license to sell in Ontario which gives you the right to sell anywhere on Ontario, but outside your market area, um, I, I would hope that the, uh, the Humber courses are still teaching this, um, that if you don't know your marketplace, you cannot treat somebody as a client. I mean, you really can't. I mean, if you're there to protect your client, you're there to get them the house that they're looking for, the cottages they're looking for, whatnot. So as soon as you're outside the marketplace, the right answer is you shouldn't really um, give advice uh, if you don't know the marketplace. However, in saying that, there are many options you can do. One, if they know the marketplace and they're comfortable making that risk or that decision to still use you, you can treat them as a customer. You don't have to treat them as a client and you have to explain the difference between that. You're still gonna uh, teach, uh, uh, treat them fairly. You're still gonna find out information about the things that do affect cottage properties or the area outside of which you're typically accustomed to. Um, so you can treat them as a customer, but they need to know that. And they need to know that there is risk associated with you providing lesser uh, legal services, you know, from a legal standpoint, lesser service or fiduciary responsibilities and just treat them as a customer. So there's one of the uh, ways you can do that. You can refer it to somebody up in the area and take a 25% referral or maybe 30%, depending on what you negotiate. Um, you could co-work with that person, do a 50-50. You show them the properties, the other person puts together the deal. There's lots of options there. The important thing is the communication between you and your client um, and that they know what, uh, what it is that they're purchasing and they get the information they need. 
playing the devil's advocate a little bit because I'm sure like the example of the agent that you're talking about who doesn't say have a lot of business, maybe it's their first their first listing even, right? Um, they may have a lot of time on their hands. Is it a case where, okay, I've got enough time I can spend on it. Maybe I can be, start to become more knowledgeable about that new marketplace during the process and still confidently be able to represent my client in that situation. Is that maybe an option? Because giving away a large portion of your commission, if this is something that's not a steady cash flow for you, can be you know a tough cookie to swallow. Yeah, you need to listen. Uh, you need you need to know what you're what you're selling. Um, if you're helping person purchase property, you need to know what it is they're purchasing. You know, one one street over can mean a difference, right? Uh, between a good area and a bad area, or and I would say good bad, an area of more crime, less crime, an area of more social issues, rentals, whatever the issue may be in that area. It could be stigma. It could be a lot of factors affecting uh, one street over another. So it's important you know it. And the fact is, if you don't, you have to learn it or you have to find somebody who does know it. Number four on our list, rental, chattels, and fixtures. Aaron, take it away. So more and more, we're seeing this. Um, We, in the past, um, you know, in the industry, we always put hot water tank as a rental, regardless of the fact of whether it was owned or not. We just want to make sure if there is a rental in place that the buyer knows that and that they're going to assume that rental. Um, But more and more, we're seeing, you know, alarm systems, we're seeing furnaces, air conditioners, um, many different rental uh, contracts. And even with hot water tanks now, um, some people are assigning themselves to instant hot water tanks that we call them instant. It's, they're not really instant, are they? They're, they're tankless models. And those tankless models have contracts that are putting, um, they're essentially uh, loans uh, to buy, to loans to purchase, and they're putting these lodgements on title, they're called. So, so it's on the title of the property. You can't sell the property without paying it out. And some of those penalties are three or $6,000. So these are all issues. And what I suggest is to make sure that whatever the rental contract you're assuming is, that you ask for it and receive a copy of it. Um, And in some cases, that's not possible. So it's really, really, you know, really, really important that you explain the risk to your buyer about taking on a rental contract and whether or not they're willing to take that risk. Um, But if the listing agent has done their due diligence, those contracts will already be available. And um, hopefully, they'll be pretty straightforward. So the buyer is not uh, too concerned with assuming those. Let's talk about due diligence there for a yeah. second. What about contracts that you don't come across doing your due diligence? Or like, is there any, any sort of way that you can make sure that you have covered all your bases when looking for these rental contracts other than just talking to your client? Uh, I, I've put a clause in my agreement. When I purchased my house in, uh, in Newmarket, um, I, I put a clause in there that if the rental contract has a, uh, is, uh, is not assumable, well, I say not assumable. I'll, I'll word it this way: if the con, if there is a contract that cannot be bought out um, or unassumable, then the seller agrees to pay out that contract before close. You know, you can ask the the, the that you receive an owned unit to turn turn it into an owned contract rather than a rental contract. If if that's the case, um, there are different things now. There's so many multiple offers and everything. You know, that may not be uh, available to be done because you know they really want the house and you know no seller is going to pay out a, a hot water tank before close, um, that sort of thing. But um, 
you know, it's it's more about making sure that the buyer manages their own risk and knows their own risk associated with those rental contracts. If they know that there's a risk, then they're less likely to be, have a problem with it when it does pop up. Um, but there are things you can do in clauses if you're negotiating to add in there and ask them for to be paid out or that you receive a copy of the, the contract and read it before um, before you you know go firm on the deal. There's, there's many different ways to deal with it. But really, I think the biggest thing that comes up right now is if you, if, uh, I mean, there's, you, you brought up a good point. Let's say you're purchasing a property and the furnace was a contract. They didn't even know, right? The sellers didn't even know it was okay. Wow, I'm paying for the furnace. I didn't realize it was on a contract. That becomes a legal issue. And that's why probably we're seeing some more of these pop up as RICO complaints. Um, when you're the listing agent, make sure to ask and to see some of those bills. I guess that's the other thing. Make sure you do due diligence on the listing end on the uh, rental contracts. Uh, because you just never know, and uh, you need to be able to overcome those objections when they come up in the, in the negotiation. Hey, number five on our list is appointments. I know that I don't make all my appointments on time. How about you, Aaron? <laughs> I try to, um, but when I don't, um, please make sure to call the brokerage and let them know, uh, the listing brokerage or the listing agent, um, because there are people that, you know, if you're selling your house and you're packing up the kids and you're, you get the dog at the neighbors or the dog at the in-laws and, you know, you do everything to get the house ready and then all of a sudden somebody doesn't show up, you know you're going to get a, an upset client with somebody either or maybe they're late. You know, if they're late, they came back home, everybody's home now, somebody's taking a shower and, uh, you know, helps themselves in through the lockbox. It's never a, a fun situation to surprise somebody. Um, so, yeah, Treb, uh, Toronto Real Estate Board um, in our area uh, really cracked down on this this year and increased the fines uh, in the process of dealing with uh, any complaints in that, in that procedure. There's been a lot of issues with that. So, Four appointments show up on time, please. And if you don't, call and let them know or rebook if you're going to be late. And now, too, there's a lot more instances where people have security cameras. We've got a nice, nice fancy doorbell at our home that records everyone coming to the door, which takes a lot of people by surprise sometimes when they say, oh, I saw you stop by yesterday this time. But when you've got a client you're bringing from the home, is, are the things you got to be worried about there from a surveillance standpoint? Well, uh, surveillance, it's, it's actually something that's brought up in RICO um, uh, bulletins as well as in the training now. They're, they're, they're actually getting more involved with telling the um, or, or educating um, buyers and sellers in the, in the marketplace to, to have these devices and actually promoting it so that uh, there is more security, uh, less risk. And, you know, it helps everybody. Really, it does things that happen within the home. Um, I would just suggest if you are doing it not to have any audio recording, that would be uh, not good. Uh, you don't want to record people's uh, conversations. Um, you know, that could that could run into issues for sure. But know that if somebody is audio recording, try and be careful what you're saying in the house too. You don't want to offend anybody or, you know, or go into conversations about negotiating deals for that matter even. So be aware that you are on camera at all times and possibly being recorded, which you really shouldn't be. I don't think that it's right, but you never know. So be careful out there. Number six on the list, written offers. Tell us about that, Aaron. Well, there's a, there's a rule that everybody has to follow because uh, the courts follow it. And that is any discussion or any decision, any negotiation 
uh, or contract with regards to real estate must be reduced to writing. And that's a RICO rule. It's a law of Ontario. Um, I'm not sure if it's a law in the, in the land <laughs> across Canada, but yes, anything in real, I think it is. I think it's a Canadian rule. I mean, you, you cannot negotiate something and say, I will buy your house for $10. And yes, I will accept that, you know, and, uh, and verbally um, uh, come to an agreement. The courts will say, no, it's, it has to be reduced to writing when it comes to real estate. Well, let, let's say later down the road, a RICO complaint is filed against you or maybe some sort of legal action is being taken with regards to a deal that you've done. Um, I know real estate, a lot of discourse is done over the phone. The problem with phone conversations is they're typically not recorded, um, whereas emails, text messages, those types of things, there's always the paper trail. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that agents should do, like not necessarily even just with regards to like offers or negotiations, but is there anything they should do to make sure they're protected so that things they do talk about over the phone or are there things, specific things when they're talking about over the phone, they should make like, you know, like a follow-up email being like, you know, just want to go over things we discussed. So they have that paper trail in case of, a, of an issue down the road. Yeah, just remember, Remember the whatever is put in uh, in an email or in a text or whatnot is is not going to help you say that yeah they said they would pay hundred or three eight hundred thirty thousand for that house or that yeah no I was going to reduce I was going to remove that finance condition and I did it by text I mean th that's not going to get you any anywhere I mean it has to be reduced to writing it has to be agreed upon by both parties etc and uh, I will put an asterisk on this whole conversation I'm not a uh, I'm not a lawyer right these are things that we as real estate agents know and. Uh, that we, we must do. So I'm not giving legal advice here, but I am telling you that, uh, and here's a couple of words of advice. If you're going to be texting um, or you're going to be emailing back and forth, just know that that can be used against you in the future and how you conduct yourself, put it that way, in front of a RICO board of ethics or whatnot, um, things that are written down. Yeah, that can, they can be brought up. There's no doubt that the, the, the courts will want to see things that were put in writing. Um, so just be careful with text and emails. I only use text and emails. As you may know, I'm not a big texter or a big emailer. You'll send me a nice email uh, every now and then with lots of detail and then and I'll say, uh, yes, sure, no problem. My wife gives me a hard time all the time. She'll ask me three questions. I'll say, yep, that's good. She goes, well, which one? <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not detailed in my responses. But what I do like uh, with text and emails is if you verifying things that we spoke about, right? And so if we talked about this and this is what's going to happen, I might do a quick email or, or text just saying, just to clarify on our conversation, you're going to have that to me by Friday, right? And that's it. So those are ways that you uh, can use text and email, but be careful with them. Yeah, they can be used against you. Number seven on the list, surveys. Tell us about that. Surveys. Surveys are... Um, often put into most agreements that you're asking for a survey. Surveys really come up quite a bit and different aspects of surveys. So this is a big topic actually as to what is a survey? What, first of all, and again, I'm not a lawyer, right? But I do know if you have a copy of a survey, it's not a survey, it's a copy of a survey. It's a picture of it. I was told once uh, from a lawyer, um, the only true copy of a survey uh, is like a, an original print or sorry, an original painting. It has to be the original with the original signature, no copies made. So if you're asking for a survey, um, be careful with that because you need an original with the original surveyor certificate. It's not a plan of subdivision because a lot of people hand over those and thinking those are surveys. So um, one thing that I've always done is if a survey is requested by the buying agent and I am the selling agent, I will always cross it out and hand over what I have and say, by the way, here's what I have. 
it may be a plan of subdivision, maybe a copy of a survey, maybe an old survey, it may not show all boundaries in the survey. Like, I mean, who knows if it has everything they're looking for. So I'm not going to guarantee them anything. Cross out the survey clause, hand over what you have. And if they don't like what they have, then they can say, listen, we need a new one done, or it may be up to the buyer. You can negotiate after that. But that's probably the best way. And be careful when you're negotiating deals on the buying side too. Try not to ask for something that is impossible to provide. All showing all boundaries, locations, fences, everything, and a brand new copy of a survey. Like it's, you know, they're going to have to go out and actually, you know, spend $2,500 or more on, on, on having a new one done if that's what you're asking for. So know what you're asking for. And definitely if you're representing your, your, uh, your listing as the listing agent, I wouldn't promise anything. I would hand over what I have. Uh, next on the list, number eight, this is actually a topic that we talked about a few shows ago, and that's basement apartments. Mm, basement apartments can come into problems when you're buying and selling and leasing. And uh, the most of the issues that we do, we do come up with um, that uh, comes up quite often is, of course, the buy and the sell. Um, so if somebody is listing a house and it has a basement apartment in it, uh, we have to make sure that uh, we do not just, you know, just say that, yeah, there's a basement apartment or let's say market it. Uh, great income potential or great income property with a basement apartment um, because there's a lot of things that go into making sure, one, that the basement apartment's legal and it can be used for that. So if somebody purchases it, that's what they wanted it for so they could rent the basement. Then they find that they can't rent it because the municipality doesn't allow them to or it's not safe. Um, that can run into problems. So if it, going back to the you know the original question or the, um, the one before this with regards to surveys, it's the same idea here. Try not to make any um, declaration or uh, put anything in, in your marketing as well as in the contract that refers to it as being a basement apartment. Um, you're buying a house with, you know, a secondary unit, let's say that uh, is, you know, we don't guarantee the the uh, municipal uh, status, whether or not it's registered or retrofit to, to uh, use as a basement apartment. So it's even go as far as to say we do not, you know, state that this is one. And I think people know that, uh, um, that if they're buying one that they are going to need to, if they're going to rent it out, uh, you know, go to the municipality and make sure it's safe and get it registered. So basement apartments can come up quite a bit in our contracts um, when buying and selling. So it's really important to make sure not to disclose. And if you're working for the buyer on the other end, making sure you're doing, doing your due diligence to make sure that that is, uh, is allowed to be used as one. Well, I, can know, I know it looks really good on a listing as a selling feature if you can say it's got a basement apartment or like you said before, you know, an extra income potential. Is there, is there a way that if you know you have one that isn't properly registered to, to say like, yes, we've got this, it's a great selling feature, but just remember it's not official. Is there a good way to like kind of promote that in a listing without... Yeah, we, too much about it. I mean, I, you know, veteran agents and agents that, that have looked for basement apartment or homes that have income potential for their clients before um, sort of know with their own MLS systems how to identify one. So, for example, if it's two kitchens, well, that's probably a good indication that there is something in the basement that's an additional unit. So they'll, they'll, they'll look at it. Um, so, yeah, there's different ways of doing that. Some people will say in-law suite, nanny suite. Um, but regardless of what you say with regards to that, you still want to make no representation in your in your contract. So I've seen a lot of people add that to their their schedules or schedule B's in, a, in, a, in an agreement. 
um, that always say if, if you know, we're referencing any uh, secondary unit, it is not uh, our position that it is retrofit. It's not, uh, you know, that it's it's not uh, registered with the municipality and the legal use. So, um, yeah, make sure that uh, if you're dealing with basement apartments, probably the best thing to do is to take it to your office manager and make sure that uh, you're doing what you, you can to market it, but not guarantee it. For someone who says they're not a lawyer, they're starting to talk an awful lot like one. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not that I don't talk to lawyers every day because we do, but yeah, if you're not a lawyer, you know, asterisk, Aaron is not a lawyer. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number nine on the list, buyer representation agreements. Yes. Let's talk about those. BRAs, some people call them bras. Um, BRA <laughs> agreements, buyer representation agreements, uh, one of the most arbitrated uh, claims at the Toronto Real Estate Board is deciding on, well, whose buyer was that? Somebody, and I'll give you an example on this one. Somebody uh, represents a, a buyer to purchase a property. Um, two months later, they get a phone call uh, from an agent saying, that was Jim Smith? Yeah, I took him by, well, I had a contract with Jim Smith. Oh, they said you didn't. They didn't, you know, when I asked them, they said they weren't working with anybody. So when you're representing anyone on a buy, one of the, actually there's three questions now that from, from arbitrated claims with Toronto Real Estate Board, these are the three questions that they say really need to be asked every time you're working with a buyer. One, are you working with another agent? Second, do you have a contract signed with another agent? And the third one, which is one that surprises most people, have you put together an offer in the last year with anyone? Have you put an offer in on a property? Because it's an indication of whether or not there could possibly be one in place that you just don't know about, or the buyer didn't know that they signed that, and they weren't explained it. So those are the three things to be careful when you're representing buyers to make sure you ask those questions. Obviously, if they were working with somebody, oh yeah, we just put in an offer last week, but we didn't get it, we didn't like our agents, so we're gonna use you now. Oh, okay, no problem, and you go buy them a house. Well, yeah, no, you need to make sure that that person wasn't in an agreement. And this, this is the argument that happens in front of the Toronto Real Estate Board's arbitration committee. And then they have to make a decision. You know, did we really knowingly go into a situation where we didn't ask those questions and, and are we going to have to now share our commission or give our commission away because they were in a contract with somebody else? Is there any way you can protect yourself from that in a buyer representation agreement that you sign with your seller um, to make sure that, say, if another BRA shows up after the fact that you weren't told about, that your commission will be covered maybe by the buyer? Read your buyer representation agreement. One of the great um, uh, changes that was made this year in our buyer representation agreements is an additional initial saying that I have not signed with somebody else. So they uh, have added that. You just have to make sure that you, that will prompt your questioning, right? That'll prompt your questions. They can, they can still initial that and be lying, right? And, uh, and as long as you've asked those questions, as long as you have those initials and you've gone through that process, um, chances are you're not going to be giving up your commission to somebody else. Um, that doesn't stop the buyer from, you know, maybe somebody coming after them legally that they signed a contract with them, but from us, we're covered now. So that has helped. Um, that uh, that initial, but make sure you explain the relationship and what they're signing uh, with your buyer reps. And final thing on the list, number ten. It's a, it's the most exciting one on the list: <laughs> advertising standards. <laughs> oh boy! And this is you know what? When I started fifteen years ago, I this was a big uh, Rico and uh, and and probably the most 
the most uh, complained about um, field with Rico was advertising. You know, um, uh, we we had different rules back then. Uh, we could not our names, Aaron Richardson, could not be bigger than the uh, brokerage's name on any advertising. Well, that's changed. It's they've changed the wording on that um, and the way we do things. Now, I think the hot topic is more about social media and what's online and what they can advertise online. Um, all the same rules with regards to print advertising uh, does does now uh, or in, and has always applied to online. So if you are doing online advertising, please make sure you're still following those rules. You know, not intended to solicit. You're not going. You're not uh, trying to interfere in other people's contracts. Um, these are all little, uh, you know, things that you, you do need to, you know, you still need to say that you work for a brokerage and what that bro who that brokerage is. I see a lot of advertising now. It's just the agent and nowhere on, you know, their Facebook page or their website in some cases um, does it state the brokerage information. So please make sure that you're still using all the RICO guidelines. RICO does a great job in their update course that I just took uh, and going through advertising standards and guidelines. They really do uh, focus on that to make sure that everybody's compliant. So one of the things this weekend that uh, came up was a, um, a representation issue with advertising and um, and who was representing who. The advertisement was that it was a, um, a brokerage that will remain nameless, but they were a mere posting brokerage. And so that the seller could negotiate their own deal. And then when we got to the, uh, not me, but when my agent got to the property, uh, the agent uh, saw a note on the on the table that said to contact this other agent from another brokerage who did not have the listing agreement. Um, so you had one person advertising on behalf of um, the brokerage that had the listing, another agency doing the negotiation, and we had to make sure that uh, they had authority to work and had a listing agreement because there is a RICO rule that states that you you know you can't one brokerage can't be working for the, another person's client. So, but in this case, the advertising and everything was done by even a third brokerage. So it was really kind of crazy. So the advertising standards there were not met, and uh, and also representation came in. Who's representing who? So in that case, um, you know, we got it all worked out, and uh, we made sure that the person that was negotiating was working for the right brokerage. Uh, but please make sure, it, one of the things Rico wants to, to ensure is that the clients, whether it be buyers or just the, the, you know, the um, people in general across Ontario know that if they're dealing with somebody in real estate, they know that it's, it's that brokerage that they're dealing with, not another brokerage, not somebody who's not registered. So in your, um, in your advertising, um, please make sure that you, you do have the proper uh, disclosures, but also, you know, represent who, who, who it is you're working for and you're working on behalf of your, your brokerage. What's the most common um, advertising mistake, I guess, that most people would make that would cause them to be non-compliant with their advertising standards that Rico has set out? Mm, there's a few, right? Uh, the, the things that pop up in my head are um, advertising a, a house that you don't have the authority to advertise, right? So, and when does it become an advertisement? You can have it on your website, our IDX and all these data share agreements and stuff with the board allow us to have other person, other agents or other brokerages um, listings on our site. But as soon as we go out and put out an advertisement and pay for it, it's an ad, right? It's essentially trying to drive up business on, on a specific property. So you see people from, from time to time putting something out there and getting calls off of something that's not theirs, right? So they're advertising somebody else's or another brokerage's. So you can't do that. So that's, that's one of them. 
Um, and then um, I also see a lot of uh, disclosures of sold prices that aren't being done properly now. That's a big hot topic. Uh, you need to be a proper VOW website with uh, sign in and, uh, and certain procedures that are followed in order to give out sold price information. And Rico's guidelines still, or rules, are still that. You can only really give the sold information uh, to somebody that has been qualified um, and for the purpose of uh, doing a market evaluation, right? So, uh, so you have to do it the right way. And uh, make sure, be careful. I've seen people say, yeah, I just sold this house for 5% of the asking price. Well, guess what 5% of 800,000 is, right? So they know the, they know what it was just sold for. And now you're disclosing the contents and the, and the, and the sold price of that deal that could be, a, could be a big no-no. So be careful with that and the way you advertise as well. well looks like a pretty good top 10 list to me. That being said, we did have 21 things that uh, we, we had to whittle this <laughs> down from. So in the description of the podcast, on our website, in the description of the video, you can find a link to the full 21 things to think about to make sure that you're RICO compliant and stay on that nice list. Aaron, is there anything else you want to add before we sign off for today? Uh, yeah, listen, if you're going to live the life, uh, balanced life of, and a great one of uh, in, in real estate, living the dream, uh, stay out of trouble, right? Um, it's, there's nothing worse than stressing yourself out over a mistake that was made or, and, and just remember this too, that you're going to make mistakes. There are things you're going to learn. You learn from mistakes. Um, do your due diligence, read your emails, watch the, watch your podcasts and, and really uh, pay attention to your Rico update courses and all the rest of it. And I'm sure you'll mitigate that risk. But if you ever do get in trouble, there are great people to help you through it. Your brokerage will help you through it. You've got managers, you've got uh, your RICO insurance and lawyers there ready to help you if you've made a mistake. So not to stress yourself out, live the dream of selling real estate without the fear of so that you're gonna get locked up and put in jail over something. Um, if it's an honest mistake, you're covered, learn from it, move on and don't let it affect your business in the future. I like to hear it. We can maintain the balance even with a pending lawsuit. So if you like the show, subscribe to our show pretty much wherever you find your podcasts online. Please don't forget to leave us a five-star review on those sites. You can check out our website at livingthedream.show where you can check out and listen to any or all of our shows. And you can head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.livingthedream.show to watch our podcast video streams on demand. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us anytime at podcast at livingthedream.show. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks everyone for watching. Have a great week.